Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. My guest today is Matthew Pleigert. He is the author of the book Pathways of Chi, Exercises and Meditations to Guide You Through Your Body's Life Energy Channels, and his website is heartmindbodywork.com. He's the Director of Education for the American Organization for Bodywork Therapies in Asia. He's also the primary instructor at HeartMind Shiatsu, which offers a 300-hour training program in Shiatsu. He also serves as visiting faculty at Zen Shiatsu Chicago and is the author of several other books and DVDs. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dawson. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm so intrigued by these ancient energy systems because when, like when I do live workshops, for example, Matthew, I always carry a little, little pocket skin galvanometer with me, and what I do is I will ask for a volunteer and demonstrate the acupuncture points. Of course, when you find a point, you can very easily find them with a galvanometer because they have so much more conductivity than surrounding skin. So people are always amazed. They think these acupuncture points are simply imaginary, and yet I show them that the actual electromagnetic phenomena on the skin, and it's always a powerful revelation to people that we are talking about mysterious channels here. We're talking about actual physical ones, which we measured, and yet the irony is that these were discovered thousands of years ago, at least 2,000 years ago, long before we had pocket skin galvanometers to find them. So just show us a little bit about your journey into this world of energy and the meridians, and also we'll go on and talk about those discoveries and those methods themselves. So how did you find yourself drawn into this world to start with? Well, perhaps I would have to go back to my experience of just simply touch. I have always been intrigued and aware and sensitive and capable in the realm of touch as a healing method. I probably began using touch and stretch and movement in my youth as a as a young gymnast and dancer and also as a singer. I'm um, a vocalist and so I was able to access this energy field which at the time when I was in my youth I call it adrenaline. I would just get energized and alive through singing or movement or gymnastics or dance. And then taking that into the realm of touch, I was able to feel on people's bodies where they were um, kinked up, where they were blocked, where they weren't flowing smoothly. And as I entered into the realm of the Chinese medical viewpoint, it was just like, that's what I do. That just so closely described my way of working with the body through the stretch and the mobilization and the compression techniques of holding and balancing the energy field. So you arrived at this very much as an organic outgrowth of your own experience. I would say so, yes. I was 
active and actually working as a career uh, theatrical professional. I had moved into a backstage position, and many people there would receive my bodywork and say, had you ever thought of doing this for a living? And in fact, uh, one of my contracts was with the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and the great opera singer Marilyn Horn received my work. And she made that very clear. She said, you ought to be doing this for a living. And at that point, my training in shiatsu had just begun, and it was just kind of the support and confidence I needed to let go of my work in the theatrical profession and move into the healing arts. And just for those who don't know what that is, just go ahead and explain what shiatsu actually involves. Well, shiatsu is an ancient Japanese method, actually, that then the word shiatsu is quite new. It was first coined in the 1920s by the Namakoshi family, but it's rooted in traditional touch therapies that have been handed down in the Japanese samurai and family systems for generations. Uh, shiatsu literally means finger pressure. She means finger, and atsu means pressure. And I discovered it through introduction, actually, through the dietary discipline of macrobiotics, some of your listeners may have heard of the macrobiotic diet, which was a Japanese-based diet that used the principles of yin and yang, the energy fields of excess and deficiency, of internal and external, cold and hot, and applied that through dietary disciplines to help you bring balance. So when I began studying this dietary discipline, I discovered shiatsu alongside it, quite marvelous to find the book Zen Shiatsu and see the pictures of Master Masanaga at work and say, well, that's what I do. I'm going to go study that. And it became my pathway in life. So does Shiatsu use the exact same points as acupuncture? The style of Shiatsu that I practice does indeed. There are various variations of Shiatsu. There are styles that don't really pay much attention to the acupuncture meridians at all. The style I practice does pay a great deal of attention to the traditional acupuncture points as uh, as taught in traditional Chinese medicine. And I must say also that Masunaga, my primary early teacher, he actually discovered an extension of the traditional meridian systems that flow through the body. And I have found the sensitivity for those extra passageways also to be quite uh, available, intriguing, and profoundly effective. Now, I'm trying to picture that because there are something like 360 acupuncture points and the meridians run all over the body. I'm trying to think where the extra, extra ones could even be. I know. Well, that's what's kind of fun when you start looking at the maps of the body. We have 12 traditional channels. There are six of them are yin on the yin aspect of the body and six are yang on the yang aspect. So yang being the outside and yin being the inside. Your listeners could think of that very simply. If you come into an all fours position, then there's part of your body in the shade and part of your body in the sun. And the yang side is the sunny side and the yin side is the shady side. Right? And so as you look at these, terrains of the body, and you find that the yin aspect has six yin channels, and the yang aspect has six yang channels, you just simply, with Masanaga's system, he doubled that, so that there are actually 12 yin, yin 
channels and 12 beyond channels. It's a really complex to visualize on a radio show and be easier to have a PowerPoint demonstration. <laughs> and you have to know all those points to be able to offer a treatment? Um, pretty much, yes. That's the, that's the training process. You learn this map of the body. And we start with the traditional flows, the 360 to 365 points on the 12 regular channels. And there are two extra vessels, the midline vessels, that are on the surface of the body. And so that's the main primary map that you need to learn. And then these extra vessels, they fit in between. They literally do fit in between the other channels and run parallel to them. So it's, it's really quite fascinating. And what you get is a very full coverage of the surface area of the body to work. How deep and how much pressure do you need to apply for an effective shiatsu treatment? That, that's a really great question. What I like to teach is something we call point of contact. Now, point of contact says that you can neither give too much pressure nor too little pressure. You have to find just the right amount. And so that's going to vary from point to point and body to body. So it's very much a, a skill set that you need to learn. And one of my favorite kind of answers to that question about how much pressure is also comes from cooking. Chinese cookery, then it would be the question, how much ginger do you put in the soup? Do you have any idea how much ginger you put in the soup? Uh, uh, enough to it tastes about right. Exactly. <laughs> enough. And so <laughs> how much pressure do we use for an effective treatment? Enough. Sometimes that means you need to do very deep pressure because it's a very deep and elusive energy pattern that needs a strong stimulation or a deep contact to root it out and to find it. And in other cases, it's very palpably on the surface. And so very similar to, say, the cranial sacral method where they talk about the weight of a nickel, that's the kind of pressure you're looking for, the weight of a nickel. And so that's very, very light touch. And you can get profound benefits from light touch. And so learning the, learning when to apply what quality of pressure is part of the training of a shiatsu therapist. I know, too, that some clients seem to really prefer very, very deep work. Others prefer very light work. Some people, very light work is profoundly shifting and meaningful. Others don't seem to really make a change unless you hit them over the head with a two-by-four, I guess you learn to assess new clients and discover just how much pressure is right for them. Indeed. I, I had one case years ago where a husband and wife came to me, and the husband came in first, and he really quite enjoyed the deep pressure, and so I went quite, I pulled every everything out, elbows, knees, I was just crawling all over this man, and he was just loving it, and he got great benefit from it, and then he left the treatment quite happy, and his wife came in, and I was still in that kind of frame of mind, and I started working on her as if he, <laughs> it was his tea under me, and so elbows and knees, and she very quickly said, oh, 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 too much, it feels way too much like work, what are you doing? So I had to very quickly moderate uh, the intensity of my treatment with her, and so that was a very clear indication of those two qualities right back to back, and that's what? not to yeah. say, yeah. One size does not fit all. Exactly. And it's not yeah. to overgeneralize about genders either, because there are some women who like it deeper than some men, and some men who like it lighter than some women. So 
that just happened to be that particular couple. How do you know which particular points to stimulate? So there's a process of reading the body that is essential. And one of my contributions to the field and kind of the point of pathways of chi is that these energy channels correlate to functionality in the human system and they follow trajectories on the surface that are kind of can be directly related to that functionality. So if someone comes in my treatment room and I can tell that their appetite is a problem or they divulge to me that they're having an eating trouble, you know, trouble with foods and diet, not feeling nourished, then I can already begin to work directly on the stomach and the spleen channels, which are the functional channels directly related to appetite and nutrition and nourishment and receiving nutrition as well as having the appetite to go out and get it in the first place. So that's part of it, is their direct communication of what they're struggling with will will be able to be set within the meridian system right away. Do you see that, sense that? How do you perceive it? My personal uh, quality is able to perceive it, to sense it, to touch it. I'm not visual in that regard. I'm more auditory and sensory. So definitely through the quality of touch and movement, I can watch somebody move and begin to assess where their challenges might be in their body. Uh, you can tell from their posture. Sometimes I will see. There will be a kind of a visual clue, but it's like more of a kinesthetic visual clue than, than perhaps seeing colors or seeing anything like a darkness or lightness in the energy field. It's going to be more of a postural cue or a movement cue or just a kind of a sensing, like there's a, uh, like a stuck energy pattern in the body will radiate kind of a dense quality. Uh, it'll be bound up, and and something that's too loose will have no give. Uh, it, it won't fight back at all. It will be flaccid and won't respond, un- unresponsive. So I will look for things like that, especially with touch. Hmm. Um, how responsive is the tissue? Does it respond? Is it is it is it listening to me? Do, do I? Do I get a sense that there's even an awareness of something going on here? Yes, and there are practitioners. There are a few of them. Like I know my friend Don Eden is actually able to see energy. She looks at people literally, and she sees energies. She sees the literal energies around them. She was interviewing me and my wife a while back for a program, and she said, a TV program, she said, do you want me to tell you what I see in your energy fields? And she went on to describe all these colors and shapes that we had together as a couple. And I really was struck, but I didn't, I didn't see any of that stuff. I, I'm really, really fascinated by people who are able to see energy that way. I think many of us have other ways of sensing energy. We might sense it kinesthetically. We might sense it intuitively. I, I know that I, I would love to see the light show, but fortunately, that's not my gift. I agree. And it's the same for me. And I honor and acknowledge those people who have such gifts and it's amazing. But for me, it's something almost maybe a little more, uh, dare I say, down to earth. It's a little practical. This is quite accessible. I've taught thousands of students over the years and just being able to slow down, relax and allow yourself to be shown what, what the client is showing you. You can see these things, but not with necessarily with colors and lights and Years ago, we do a particular kind of assessment in the belly where we run, our, we move our hands around. The, it's called hara in Japanese. The hara is the abdominal region, 
And all of the channel systems have a reflex area in the abdomen. And so by palpating that reflex area, you can read whether the energy is excess or deficient, right? Well, I'm teaching this to this group, and a student, she would look up at me every time she would be applying her hands to the hara, and she'd look up and say, I don't feel anything. And I would just, I didn't laugh at her, but it was struck me as rather funny, and I just re- replied to her, you are feeling something. <laughs> you, you're, you're feeling something. What is it that you're feeling? And she would reapply herself, and immediately she would look back at me in the next moment and tell me that she had just read an excess or a deficient pattern. It was really quite remarkable. And so I think the cue there was that I gave her permission to accept that what she felt was valid. There wasn't anything special that she had to feel. It was different than what it was that she was actually feeling. And so by giving a person permission to just open up to their own perception, it's almost like you can't feel nothing. <laughs> Does that make sense? You hear what yeah, I'm the saying? way we feel is also as individual as we are. And so some people may, might have certain sensations of the, of the others. And I guess right. there's no one right way. Correct. Yeah. Can you do shiatsu successfully on yourself without a practitioner? Yes and no. There are styles of self-shiatsu where you press on acupoints yourself. And I give that as homework to my clients. So you need to press on these points daily, for instance, would be a would be a recommendation that I might give to a client as they're leaving my treatment room because uh, a particular area is knotted up or blocked and the uh, self-administered shiatsu is going to help relieve that blockage and move that energy through their system effectively. And a daily practice is going to be really important. They might be coming to see me twice a week at the, uh, or weekly and or maybe even not seeing me for as many as three weeks. But ideally, shiatsu is a paired practice. It's a it's touch that you get from a friend or a loved one or a professionally trained therapist that assists you to rebalance something that you just haven't quite had the ability to balance on your own. I know, Matthew, you also are a real practice and practitioner of Qigong. Go ahead and describe that and the use you make of it and what you recommend that both practitioners and um, non-practitioners do with Qigong in their daily lives. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, first I just have to say, uh, listening to your intro into this segment, uh, I was intrigued by the lowering the cortisol levels work with the eco-meditation as well as the tapping systems that you mentioned because Qigong actually includes both of these <laughs> A Qigong practice will absolutely lower your cortisol levels, increase your dopamine levels, and we also will use tapping during a Qigong sequence to awaken the energy flows through the system of the body. Now, Qigong itself means simply Qi cultivation. Qi is life energy. Gong is cultivation. So, Qigong, Qi cultivation. So, we're all cultivators. We all breathe. So, what is it that we're breathing, and where is our consciousness focused? And focusing consciously to awaken health and happiness and well-being and ease and comfort and calm within and sensitivity to the energy flowing through your body so that you can remove blockages and relieve pain and soften anxieties, soften tensions in the body so that you become at ease. This is the work of Qigong. 
those are all such valuable things. And how often do you recommend that a person practice Qigong? And Qigong is really a daily practice. In fact, I, I like to say Qigong is throughout the day. It, it's not something that's necessarily isolated to the one-hour class with the teacher. You might do one hour or as many as three or four hours of classes per week if you go to a teacher that you enjoy. Much like your yoga practices, you go to the yoga studio and you have your hour to an hour and a half of yoga, but you don't do that every day unless you're actually a teacher of yoga or, you know, it's part of your lifestyle to be able to go to that many classes. But you go once to four times a week to a Qigong class, and then daily you have a personal practice that you cultivate and develop. And how long might that be? I like to work my Qigong in about five to 20-minute segments, and it can be as simple as on that half-hour walk you take in the morning. You can focus on your breath and running the qi through your meridian channels as you walk. You can practice Qigong while you're at the sink doing the dishes or at the kitchen counter chopping vegetables to prepare your meal. Um, You can practice Qigong as you move the vacuum cleaner in your house, Uh, Qigong as you're walking up and down steps. So Qi is a cultivational, Qi is everywhere and ubiquitous, and every action we take, if we do it with consciousness of the use of our body and our mind in harmony, in effect we are practicing Qigong. Now, a little bit more to the question, though, about Qigong as a discipline, you might have seen a video of the Chinese people in the parks in the morning practicing their Tai Chi. Tai Chi is is a form of Qigong. And a a Tai Chi set will be anywhere from 10 to 40 minutes, uh, perhaps as much as an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, So depending on how deep your practice is and how many movements you incorporate into the choreography of your set, that would give you kind of the length of your practice. Yeah, and I think that many people, when they hear that, are thinking, wow, an hour, an hour and a half, 45 minutes, that seems like a a long time, three or four times a week. Um, What's the minimum you can use to get benefit from these practices? I like to say 20 minutes a day. Really, seriously, I can do my full set fairly comfortably within a 20-minute period of time. There is a particular practice in Qigong called Wuji Standing Meditation. And the Wuji Standing Meditation is simply standing still. And you may recall the famous phrase from Tai Chi that says, standing as still as a mountain, moving as freely as a river. Stand like a mountain, move like a river. And so the standing practice is fundamental to Tai Chi, and from this quiet, deep inner place comes the movement and the flow. The standing practice, about five to ten minutes of standing practice, moving into a flowing five to ten minutes of flowing movement and returning to a standing still practice, there's your 20 minutes of Hmm. cultivation. That's not a very demanding or long amount of time. And also, I imagine just the, rather than being sedentary, is helpful. Because so many of us sit in our chairs all day long, we're in offices, we're in cubicles, we're at our desks, and we just don't get enough movement. So anything that gets you movement, moving is going to be useful and good for your health. The only thing you do that's wrong 
is to get inspired and then do nothing. I still want you to take that 20 minutes a day and practice Qigong as Matthew's been advocating. Go to that class, even if it's one time a week, one time every two weeks, doing something, taking control of your well-being is a powerful, powerful tonic. You get used to feeling good. And when you start to do that regularly, you're doing things internally in your biochemistry. You're lowering your cortisol. You're balancing the level of neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine in your brain. And you're habituating your body to feeling really, really wonderful. That becomes the new normal. To where when you don't feel wonderful, you know that something's off and you take steps to correct it quickly. You get used to feeling absolutely fantastic in your body. And I urge you to bring yourself to that state. You mentioned, Matthew, some fun experiences you've had recently in which you had thoughts that wound up becoming manifest really quickly. Please do share those with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's really fun to explore these topics. Uh, during the month of August, I was quite busy. I taught two major workshops and saw 100 clients in the month, and it was just a busy, busy time. And I then moved into September, and internally I thought, oh, I really, really need a break. <laughs> I need a little break here. But I didn't change anything in my outreach to clients or my schedule. But for some reason, that whole week, like, Three people called in for sessions that week. It was just a kind of remarkable break that I was given by the universe. And after about a week, I realized, wait a minute, I want to see clients again. And as soon as I had that thought, the phone started ringing and my, my schedule filled up again. And it was quite, <laughs> quite remarkable. I, I think of this often that uh, I call it uh, inner marketing or the psychic marketing, if you will. When you remember the when the student is ready, the teacher will appear? Yes. That's a famous old phrase. Well, I've turned that around and said, when the teacher is ready, the students will appear. <laughs> and so my own inner readiness is completely essential for having the arrival of the, the, the students or the clients or the, the right next set of circumstances. Hmm. That's a great story. That's a wonderful story how, of how just the thought you had without you making any change in your external routine resulted in a very quick shift in your own reality. Any others like that? Well, you know, there's a kind of a funny story that came to mind, too, when you asked me this question. It goes back to my days as a parent in my early parenting years when my, my son was just five years old. And I was in a phase of my life that wasn't the most pleasant. I was a householder and I had a lot of chores to do and quite frankly I was in my mind uh, speaking uh, one of those words you can't say on the radio. <laughs> Repeatedly over and over and over in my mind I was very frustrated with the amount of workload that I had in my household and then my young son, I mean four or five years old, started speaking that exact same word out loud repeatedly. <laughs> and this went on for a week or two until finally I looked at him and I realized he was saying the word out loud that I was saying in my mind. And I looked at him and said, thank you very much. I can say that for myself. And so I spoke the word out loud and he then stopped saying it. And it, it was really quite remarkable how I think this is a level of, maybe it's a level of psychic ability, it's a, a level of mind reading. He knew absolutely what I was saying, even though I wasn't speaking it out loud. And he started giving it voice. He was thinking it, he was saying it. I was thinking it, he was saying it. 
And then finally when I realized that and I owned it for myself, he stopped saying it and it was mine once more. He didn't have to do that work for me. Yes, and being aware of this dance we all dance all through our lives of inner and outer is very powerful. Many people think that circumstances just happen to them out of the blue, and they don't fully understand the roles they play in creating them. And yet, if we look closely, we can find all kinds of ways in which we do create our experience. And I know that one of the, the favorite ideas that I look at is the whole idea of taking full responsibility for your life. And that makes a big difference. Yes, and in the parenting example I gave, parents would do well to understand this. Because if they're distressed at something their children are doing, it's a direct reflection of something they have not worked out yet. (laughs) Parents, I mean, children are direct mirrors. And they're so close to us psychoenergetically that uh, it's, it's it's a workshop. It is. It's a powerful chance also to clean up all of our past. Because when you have a child... The only template you have for how to parent that child is the way you yourself were parented. And so it's very easy to slip into those old patterns and pulling yourself out of them and saying, I'm not going to do it that way, is your chance to break that cycle of unconscious parenting and raise a conscious child. So it's a powerful moment in our lives when either we can repeat all our old conditioning or we can wake up and do it fresh and do a far better job of being there to conscious way for our kid. Yeah, that waking up is so key. So does you does do Tai Chi or Qigong? My sons are now in their teen years, and they have not yet found their way back. <laughs> They're quite wrapped up in, shall we say, the media-soaked world of teen years. They're both quite active athletically. They're sports. Uh, you know, into their sports, so mainstream sports, basketball, football, etc. So they have not awakened to these practices yet, and I'm not pushing it. I think it's wise, because when the time is right and they need them, they'll find a way back to them. One thing I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, Matthew, is one trend I find actually rather discouraging in this field. For the last 10 years or so, I've been part of a study group that looks at popular media. And one of the real problems with the popular media as you see it is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is now effectively run in terms of all its alternative medicine entries by skeptics and uh, hostile skeptics of that. So what they've done is they've gone into all of the listings for acupuncture, acupressure, shiatsu, energy medicine, energy psychology, homeopathy, and so on. And they've inserted the word pseudoscience into those and other kinds of hostile uh, and derogatory terms. And I'm going to read to you what, what, uh, what you'll find if you go to the, the Wikipedia entry for acupuncture. This is verbatim. I'm reading this. I went there to that website for another project five days ago, and this is what I learned about acupuncture. If I'm a newbie, but if I know about this wonderful new healing method I've heard so much about, I go to Wikipedia, this is what I learned. Quote, according to Quackwatch, Acupressure is a dubious practice, and its practitioners use irrational methods. Quackwatch includes acupressure in a list of methods which have no rational place as massage therapy, and states that practitioners may also use irrational diagnostic methods to reach diagnoses that do not correspond to scientific concepts of health and disease. There is no physically verifiable anatomical or histological basis for the existence of acupuncture points or meridians. And so, again, these kinds of attacks by the skeptics were pretty much taken over. Actually, about 10 years ago, they took over all the alternative medicine entries on Wikipedia.
media and have now seeded them with these statements from non-peer-reviewed sources. They ignore peer-reviewed medical journals, uh, psychology journals, and instead they put this kind of perspective up there as fact on Wikipedia. I know this is, you're aware of this, but what do you, what do you say to these kinds of skeptics who, who perpetuate these kinds of myths? I invite them to lie down on my mat and receive a treatment uh, because the proof is in the pudding, as they say, you know. El provo en el gusto, the proof is in the taste. And so they probably have never lied down on a mat and received a, a treatment that has felt the experience of their headache going away or their lower back pain being relieved or their digestion finally moving after being stuck for so long. These are skeptics who are sitting in a, a glass house throwing stones, you know. It's really quite sad. And in a way, it's a little bit funny, but it is disturbing and discouraging, too. And these debunkers, I, I, I was just shared a, a, one of my students in uh, my class this past August is a is a brilliant researcher. He's been practicing rolfing for 30 years and has studied a lot of the mind-body field and practiced for 30 years. And he was telling the story of a man who had a wonderful technique uh, that he used many different uh, kind of scientific or uh, rational terms to describe the theory of why his work was effective. And a debunker came along and was pulling apart every single theory that he had. There was no physical reference anatomically or physically or physiologically in the body that were could be used to correlate to this gentleman's theory about why his work was effective. And so eventually the debunker was enticed to lay down on the table and receive work, and the headache that this man had had for years went away. He got up from the table and said, well, you don't know why your work works, but it works. You should stop trying to describe why. You should stop trying to justify the effectiveness of your work with an anatomical or even, let's call it a Western scientific theory or background. It simply works. I'm well, one of the comforting progressions one finds in science is that, first of all, phenomena are observed. And so physicists yeah. observe phenomena, clinicians, doctors, therapists observe phenomena in the consulting room, and then only much later usually are explanations developed as to why those things work. So for example, we knew that willow bark was effective for headaches for of years, and then aspirin, as a matter of fact, was known about for about 100 years before there was any idea of why aspirin works. We knew that aspirin worked. We didn't know why aspirin worked. Same thing for colchidine, same thing for quinine, same thing for many other kinds of medical treatments. We knew that they worked. We didn't know why they worked. And the why often comes much, much, much later than the what. So ultimately, we do find scientific explanations for these things, but in the meantime, in that gap, there is this unfortunate and often prolonged time when we know that something works, but why it works, and that's where the skeptics play and tell us yes. that these things are bad. But I just encourage anybody who's uh, looking, especially at Wikipedia, there are a few others, like the wonderful Bashful Wiki, Wiki, that is just for the skeptics themselves. They don't permit any other people to uh, question those beliefs, yes. and they write their own entries there. There are also really good online encyclopedias like Scholarpedia only allows peer-reviewed factual articles. It doesn't allow the kind of uh, non-factual anti-scientific discourse that Wikipedia encourages, uh, whereas uh, Wikipedia is just laced with all kinds of errors of fact 
and errors of science. So I'd be very, very careful, and I would look for reputable sources, peer-reviewed journals, credible medical authorities, universities that aren't invested in research in any kind of financial way, your information you're getting from that kind of a source. Well, it's been so interesting sharing this information with you over the course of the last hour. Matthew, thank you. Yeah, Dawson, I appreciate that. Great honor. So for more on Matthew's work, go to heartmindbodywork.com heartmindbodywork.com, and you can find his book as well uh, called Pathways of Cheese.